0: Well, Welcome to another edition of Rethinking Religion. I'm here again with Professor uh, John Verveke and the anti-professor Lehman Pascal, and we're keeping them at a safe enough distance not to rend <laughs> the fabric of the universe, <laughs> but hopefully close enough for there to be some ripples. That's, that's what I'm... Counting on.
1: <laughs> well, we're going to meet up in Toronto in person in May, so I guess yeah, yeah. that's Toronto or something. <laughs> yeah. If you hear about a big explosion in Toronto, you know what
2: happened. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I wanted to maybe you know, get us going with a, a recap of some things that we talked about at the very end of our last discussion. And so at the end of that discussion, we named a few themes that we thought might be worth continuing to explore as we go forward. One is this question of uh, effective nihilism and how it might relate to uh, you know, the meaning crisis and our, our general disenchantment of our time, um, the disappointment that many people feel in reality, um, which may accompany the, the death of God and also make it difficult to really fully process that, the phenomenon of God surrogacy, you know, the many ways that we kind of rebound from the mm-hmm. death of God, and uh, uh, but basically, which keeps the same self structure intact, and uh, I, I mentioned some themes of the severing and the silencing and the culture of make believe, and so I'd like to start with that latter part, especially Derek Jensen's notions of silencing and the culture of make believe as a way of setting up kind of a broad frame to, to think about all those other things together. So. I don't know if you're either either of you are familiar with uh, Derek Jensen very much he's an unusual figure he's a a creative very creative English teacher Um, he's a survivor of some pretty horrific abuse and he's also a pretty radical anti-civilization ecological activist and you know I kind of think of him as a a mad desert prophet dressed in sackcloth, wandering at the edges of the city and (laughs) chewing on grasshoppers. And every now and then he wanders into the city to yell at everybody to tell us how bad we're getting everything wrong, you know? And I think there's something that he brings that is a kind of bracing truth. I think he's, for my taste, he's a bit extremist, but I think there's something that he's saying, a, a genuine insight that he has that's worth considering. You know, and he writes broadly about um, the ecological crisis, but he also considers different social issues, um, the, the kind of the foundations of our civilization on, on violence and exploitation and, you know, issues with racism and, and sexism and other things like that. And so running through all of his discussion is this theme of abuse that, you know, he draws from his own personal experience of growing up in an abusive You know, home in his childhood. And, you know, growing up in such an environment um, where he had a a socially respected father who was nevertheless privately pretty terribly abusive, uh, raping uh, and and beating, you know, people in um, the family on a regular basis, including Derek. Um, He says, in those conditions, the family kind of learned to develop what, you know, he calls a a culture of make believe, interfacing with society as if everything is normal, Um, you know, putting on their best faces, acting as if everything's okay, and avoiding talk about those things that are really difficult to process. Um, And so it it kind of sets in, in play the dynamics of a culture of silencing. Also, there are certain things that you broach and other things that basically are just put out of consciousness, you know, the whole dynamics of of repression and all of that. So Jensen suggests that, you know, something similar to that is going on um, with Western culture. You know, he looks at multiple cultures, but really focuses on the West. And, you know, so we, we really don't want to look too closely at a number of the things on which our civilization has been built and on which it still currently rests, you know, the conditions in which our conveniently available meat products are are produced, or what happens to our waste, and what is the scope of our waste, or what conditions make possible the, the convenient and cheap phones and clothes that we wear. And, you know, the exploitation of, of, of people in other countries, the, the turning a blind eye to Human trafficking, you know, he just goes through a huge litany of things that in which our, our culture is implicated, both deeply historically and currently, and and suggests that like an abusive family, there's enough there that's uncomfortable to process and bear that we enter into the dynamics of a culture of make-believe, talking about and acknowledging certain things and maybe not really processing our disappointment with reality, our, 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 our grief and concern about some of the things that are going on um, to the point that we believe our own make-believe for, for many people, we, 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 we don't even go there. We don't even seek to broach those things. Uh, but the degree to which we do that, it makes it very difficult for us to uh, process the kind of things that we, we've talked about in the last, couple uh, discussions around the grief of God and around the state of the world. When I first mentioned uh, crying as a practice of the self um, and grief work generally, I was thinking about doing that in relationship to the state of the world. And we turned pretty early on towards looking at the grief of God. And I'm really glad we did. I think that's a really key element, and we unpacked that and unfolded that in a number of ways, and I don't think we've finished with that. Um, There's still more to look at, but I think if we're going to look at things like effective nihilism um, Mm. and at, uh, you know, pervasive kind of disappointment with reality, possibly at a culture of make-believe, then it makes sense to kind of pivot back to that original position, which Lehman was also emphasizing in the last discussion around post-doom, the importance of really Considering the state of the world and our feelings about that, and our inability or ability to to grapple with that and process that and, and go through a grieving process with it and a healing process around it, hopefully. So that's kind of the the broad frame that I wanted to set up for for you know approaching some of these themes is is the our difficulty maybe with fully owning the dark side of, of our reality. Um, not only the distractions that we talked about last time or our disappointment in the death of God or our disappointment with just the world that isn't as enchanted as we wanted it to be, but even some of the other darker elements or the the, the elements of our our way of life that we don't want to, to think about. You know, where do our pesticides go after we ban them in our country? Well, they go get used in other countries that don't have the same restrictions and then the same effects happen in that population. And so, you know, there's so many different things that we don't want to look at. What's happening to the oceans, you know? So it's a huge complex. And, and, and I think there's a lot of uh, um, energy that goes into maintaining a culture of make-believe that, that keeps us in a coping um, condition um, without exposing us to too much, you know, trauma. But it also makes it difficult to really process what's going on. And the last little note I want to just say here is that I think for all three of us, we don't look to the past and think of it only as corrupt or, 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 or broken or bad, or that we don't look to our civilization and only condemn it to the degree that someone like Derek Jensen would. I think we all see that there's great riches and, and wisdom and, and, and things that are worth exploring and preserving and carrying forward in some way. All of our projects with post metaphysical spirituality and religion, that's not a religion, are looking to the gifts of the past also. So I don't want to focus only on the negative, but I think it's still important. I think Derek Jensen is naming something that's important and is bound up in all of this other stuff that we're looking at.
1: I think that's excellent, Bruce. Thank you for that. I think that's insightful. I'd like to pick up on that, what you said. And, and and make sort of a, I don't know what call it, sort of a phenomenological, existential, ontological point. So at least I have a lot of adjectives going for me, <laughs> uh, which is there has always been a deep interconnection between God and the intelligibility, um, sacredness of the world. And uh, this is part of Nietzsche's critique. We can come back to it. But I, one of the things that... Um, has struck me about this and, and, and it's, it struck me really powerfully when you were speaking Is I've tried to emphasize a, a, a theme that Creasy uh, picks, picks up on, which is affective nihilism, that nihilism is much more affective. I think it's affective, attentional, and, and, and attitudinal, uh, but we can pick up on that later, much more than sort of something that you argue yourself into. A- and um, you get people from very different positions, Nagel and Nietzsche, converging on that sort of argument. Um, now why am I saying all of that? Because I've often argued, I still think the point is right, but I think the problem is more problematic than I have maybe properly seen, which is I've talked that the the true response to nihilism is to learn to love, to fall in love again with being. The problem for us uh, is that, and this also ties into the grief of God, We are, we've been foregrounding the lack of the transcendent aspect of God, but the death of the world means we're also losing the imminent aspect of God, right? And this is something um, that, of course, is being very significantly missed by the prophets of imminence who the postmodernists and, you know, Deleuze and Derrida and all about the seeking for the transcendental. This is all, all, all ultimately Nietzsche's thesis. It's our seeking for the transcend transcendental, which has blinded us uh, to the right, to the love of the earth, as Nietzsche would put it. And I think that what's problematic about that is it's actually very problematic for people to do that because of everything you've just said. Um, I think just telling people to, like, and again, I don't want to be flippant, um, you know, Ursula goodness idea transcendence into nature and that it's like, yeah, but we we're faced with a sort of a weird conceptual bind. I'll try and state this and then I'll, 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 I'll turn things over to layman. Right. So we, we, we previously had an ancient notion of nature as chaos that needed to be tamed. Nature was threatening, right? And, and and But it was threatening in a, if I can put this, in a positive way. It was a challenge for people. It could take them out of civilization. And, of course, that gets twisted in certain ways and certain forms of decadent romanticism. But nevertheless, we had that. And now we have a different notion, which is wounded nature, and it's threatening in a different way. It's not threatening because it's an overwhelming power. It's threatening because we're killing it and there's a threat to us. And so we have those two conceptions, right, are, are very much at odds with each other. I think the first one very powerfully supports uh, the idea of the imminence of the sacred, because it can have the numinous within it. But all if what we look, what we see when we turn to the imminent world both the cultural world. And there's a deep connection between culture and the sacred and to the non-cultural world, calling it the natural world is a bit of a mistake. I'll just call it the non-cultural world. We see decadence and decay and disease (laughs) and death. Um, And when you tell people, you know, you should do recover the sacred by falling in love with that. That's like kind of like asking them to make love to the corpse. Um, And, um, you can see why many people would find that ultimately not viable for them. Um, and so I think that I, I'm trying to say, I think the two issues are actually very deeply connected because I think the intelligibility and the sacred depths of the world and the disclosure of, of God or the sacred have always been deeply interp- intertwined. And, and we're, we're at again, a, a, a new thing, which was not, which has, we have not confronted before, And it's ambiguous. We've talked about spiritual ambiguity, which is the real possibility of global death. And I think this chokes off the channel of imminence. Uh, And and while we're still railing against transcendence, I think we, we need to seriously confront the fact that many people are avoiding the grief of the loss of imminent sacredness as well. And so you get highly subjectivized kinds of attempts to say well, somehow deep in my psyche, there is still the sacred, or you get deep within the virtual, somehow I can find uh, the sacred. So I just wanted to um, say that I think we're beyond in a very deep way. I, I still think we haven't properly grieved the loss of the tra- transcendent, but I think we're beyond what Nietzsche was talking about, the postmoderns are talking about, because we're really facing the death of the imminent. I think uh, Morton c- comes close to seeing that in Hyper Objects, uh, and Han comes close to seeing it in um, uh, The Scent of Time. About we've act- we're lo- Han talks about our daily lives, like our, our, our experience of time. What's more imminent than that? Time has always been the contrast to eternity. Time has always been the contrast to eternity, and Han is saying we are losing time, time is being atomized, it doesn't flow, it doesn't have duration, it's not pregnant with meaning, it whizzes, that's his term for it. So we're losing, we're profoundly losing the imminent. It's not just that we're losing the transcendent, we are, but I think, I'm trying to connect these, I hope this is working, What what Bruce said, I think we're profoundly losing the imminent as well. And so while I still think it's right that we need to teach people how to fall in love with being again, I think that's hard for people to do uh, precisely because the, phenomenologically, the phenomenological furniture of the presencing of being strikes us as either corrupt or decaying, and that is problematic for the sinews of our psyche. That's, that's, how, that's how I want to put it.
2: Well, I'll uh, uh, start where I was going to start and see how it weaves in because there's a lot of similar themes there. Uh, I wanted to make a caution about Nietzsche's take relative to our last discussion, and it's some of the themes you guys have already touched on because I think Nietzsche is pointing to a contaminated form of meaning production epitomized in a particular style of highest value signifier that locates... Uh, normative worthiness in a non-being who exists prior to and therefore outside of reality and is therefore by definition kind of not real and encourages self-thwarting anti-life instincts among its living followers. And so therefore loses the sacredness of the imminent world. And I think that's very important to explore and get a more rich understanding of. But I don't think the death of the failed God is adequate to the whole discussion we're trying to have. There's a more radical question that we've been in front of, which is how we more gracefully and effectively lose even our own best understanding of a viable God, of the imminent holiness of everything. Mm -hmm. I think there's there's a risk in looking at it through the Nietzschean lens where we don't... um, We don't get the gains we would get from taking the risk of sacrificing even our own deepest and most true appreciations of the viable divinity of the world and the set of metaphysical assumptions epitomized in that being. Um, There's a kind of Zizekian move here. Bruce was saying grief of God. Zizek points to a kind of Hegelian and also he references it through Chesterton, this notion where our feeling about the loss of God, say, is re-inscribed dialectically back into God so that it is itself lost. And we mm-hmm. can do that same move with the world. And that's a much more fundamental sundering that we have to emotionally process than merely thinking we've um, lost the corrupted God who wasn't able to bring forward the natural sacredness of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, So with that as a caveat, then I would look at uh, Nietzsche through um, everything that Creasy's book brings up for me. I see him trying to do a bio socio psycho of a cluster of disorders that are uh, arising reciprocally with the contaminated or, let's say, iatrogenic framing of the potency of value and meaning. And yes, that's only partially an issue of beliefs and ideas and much more significantly a problem of affect and attitude and cultural momentum, that there's a symbiotic loop generating people who are self-neutralizing personally and collectively in an unfolding reality. I generally agree with that. Uh, I always want to point out how broad the tendencies of nihilism are, that when we think thoughts that are non-thoughts or feel against our feelings or eat what weakens us or cause our own culture to become less dynamic and interesting and nuanced, uh, these are all the forms that the nihilist is bad at valuing, and that is potentially applicable to any domain Wherever we regress and undermine ourselves, we become valuable to a return towards simpler attractors, what Wilver would call more fundamental but less significant forms of life. And that vulnerability to regress is accompanied by dispirited affects, conscious or unconscious. Uh, and that's a much bigger problem than the surface level of people verbally claiming that their cognitive map consists of a world in which nothing can be believed. So this much broader nihilism includes the affect aversion, includes the degenerate forms of make-believe that Bruce was pointing to. It persists in modern and postmodern and secular and cynical and romantic contexts. And I think it's um, getting a sense of this broader nihilistic argument that Nietzsche is making. Should be read through other thinkers. If you read through McGilchrist as critiquing the insufficiency of the dominant left brain mode, should be read through Wilhelm Reich as critiquing the electrophysiological inability to allow organismic flows of affective stimulation that are necessary to nourish intimacy and spontaneously affirm life per se. But that affirmation also includes the ability to um, truly suffer and, and let what we were holding on to die, right? It's not simply a shift. Uh, I think, as John was pointing to, of I'm going to love being, I have to really suffer from the insufficiency of being in order to permit myself some kind of relationship that is love-like. So we see these systems of self-degeneration that remain relatively stable over long periods of time and therefore have not completed themselves. Sort of how I would extend Nietzsche's notion of the decay of the highest values, that God is Uh, dying, but not fast enough, still lingering, still lingering, even in the atheists, we haven't let it go all the way down in a kind of Zarathustrian sense. And this is where it touches back on our conversation from last time is we haven't allowed the grief. We haven't suffered the disappointment completely enough and deeply enough. We're still leaving ourselves some areas that we think are sacred and special and out of bounds relative to the insufficiency we have to suffer. So, the vestigial nihilism continues to exist, which will inhibit our ability to serve the work of returning divinity to the world.
0: Yeah, that's really profound. And I think it, it takes us up right to the edges of, you know, like apophatic mystical experience, where if you think about it in terms of the different types of, of, of dark night. And maybe we've been considering a dark night of the senses, but there's this deeper dark night of the soul as well, where even the most, you know, reliable fundaments come apart. You know, not only the the beliefs and the culturally received things, but even the deepest intuition of the sacred maybe Mm. comes apart in that dark night of the soul. I know that that's something that someone like Bernadette Roberts has talked about as she's gone deeper and deeper into her own practice even that very very fundamental light <laughs> that was at the root of everything for her ultimately it had to be let go um, for there to be any kind of regeneration true truly deeply transformative regeneration for her um, I don't know if it's if it's gonna work <laughs> to bring this in at this point but I've been thinking about uh, Heinz Kohut and his notion of of self-objects and our relationship to self-objects and the process of transmuting internalization. And we've had the big other that has served certain roles for us and that's come undone um, to a large part. But I don't think we've gone through what Kohut calls transmuting internalization to to really see what roles did that big other play for us and how do we properly interject them? How do we properly own them Um, and let go of what was not serving us. But with the idea of of, of self objects in, in Kohut, we need, you know, the, the the forming self needs certain functions to be carried by an other before they can be adopted and carried out by the self. Mm-hmm. And the parent does this, um, the parent regulates our emotions before we can regulate our emotions. And, you know, so there, there are many layers of what our self objects do for us functionally, before we're able to kind of interject those functions into ourselves. And uh, I think it's, you know, if, if you think about the, the mirroring needs and the, um, uh, you know, kinship needs and the different kinds of needs that he he talks about, it's very easy to look at some of our mythic God figures as playing some of those roles. God or Jesus loves you, no matter what, God is the friend, God, you belong with God, whatever, whatever is wrong with you, God is going to hold with that, God is also the idealizing self-object, where God is that towards which we ultimately aspire and grow to be more like him in form, so um, we've created objects that, mythical objects that were able to serve kind of ultimate self-object functions, especially if there were ruptures in the family environment or social environment, we can look to that other object to play those kinds of roles for us. And with the sundering of, of, uh, of the sacred, the transcendent and the imminent and the dissolution of the God image, um, we're adopting um, some very poor self objects, things that, that don't really serve those needs very well. And yet we're also thwarted, I think from, maybe erecting a new cultural mythic form um, that can serve that, that self-object role for bringing forth the new kind of self that we need. That w- I, I think we're not looking at just getting rid of self. We're looking at maybe birthing mm-hmm. a new order of self. Mm-hmm. And we haven't found, I think, yet that resonant um, attractor uh, that can serve a self-object function for the new culture, right, um, and I think that's what we're looking for. But right now, we're in a place where the old sacred has dissolved. The imminent isn't; it doesn't seem like it. It works just as John was pointing out, because of the, you know, the corruption and, and the weakness and the, the 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 threat of of collapse. <laughs> you know, where do we look for? Yeah, for or, where do we look in order to orient ourselves properly and 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 uh, and to find the sacred? And because I, I think the sacred imaginally mm. does it does many things. It doesn't do only the psychologized self object function, but I think that is something that is there. And I think it's part of of the pervasive nihilism that we find now is that we don't have any of those self objects, and we're we're um, are Our authentic willing is thwarted in that because we don't really have, I would say, meaningfully constituted selves participating in a meaningful world um, in a way that's actually uh, adequate to the needs of our times.
1: I I think that, I don't think that's inappropriate or misplaced at all. I think uh, the self-object relations, uh, I mean... Uh, There's a lot of things that are convergent with that. There's Plato's notion of what I would call anagogic resonance, the depths of the psyche and the depths of the cosmos reflect and reinforce each other. And you get that in current models of addiction as reciprocal narrowing or the opposite reciprocal opening. I think that's very well placed, Bruce. Uh, And I don't think it was just, you know, the functionality, uh, the imaginal affordance of of the functions of uh, of, of internalization, um, you know, and you can bring in Vygotsky here as well to, to bolster that argument. I think uh, the sort of go Vygotsky to Plato that the, the sacred was a place that educed and educated our sense of realness by, by properly sort of spinning that wheel of Anagage and preventing it from spinning downward. Um, so I agree with you. I mean, Nietzsche sees this and doesn't see this, um, because, he, you know, the madman says to the atheist, you know, you don't realize what you've done and how do we become worthy of it? He gets a sense of that. But I, I take Nishitani's critique of Nietzsche to be very profound, that Nietzsche stops at a, a still a very egocentric notion of nothingness, um, even though he's already getting the sense of the Anagoga. If you stare long enough into the abyss, it begins to stare back into you. He's get, but, but Nishitani says, Nietzsche doesn't go deep enough. He doesn't properly, to use our language, he doesn't properly grieve to the depths. He doesn't despair to the depths. He doesn't go through the dark night of the soul. He doesn't face despair the way, for example, I think Kierkegaard does. And um, um, so I, I, th- I think that, I think what you just said is very well placed for me that that that's part of the issue. I don't, I, in addition to uh, uh, not knowing where people turn for wisdom, I'm wondering where people turn for realness, right? I'm, I'm wondering where they turn, because uh, like, of course, all right, so the, transcend, the, the transcendental sky is no longer f- experienced as real, it's experienced as illusory, that's the Nietzschean point. The imminent is not experienced according to the two sort of primary phenomenological markers of real, which is that which is confirming and eternal, or that which is surprising and is becoming. Instead, we got this in-between thing that has features of both, but neither satisfactory, which is decadence. The universe, we get we have an entropic model now of the cosmos, and we have a corruptive model. It's it's like being in the fall without a god, right? And so. And then, of course, people can't turn to the cultural world. They can't find sort of a Durkheimian realness because they believe, I think, with justification that the social world is filled with bullshit and corruption and bad actors. And and then they can't even really escape into the the virtual world to find realness. Well, first of all, because it's virtual. And second, because that world is also manipulative and corrupt. So I, I this is like when I was trying to ask about the four L's, talking about the four L's before we talk about God, like love and light, and logos, and uh, what do I, love and light logos and what was the fourth L? Can't remember. Love, light, life. <laughs> love, light, uh, logos, and life. And so where do, where do we, uh, where, that's telling that that was the one I couldn't remember. Um, it's telling, it's, you can see what's in my mind. Um, so I don't, like, I'm trying to, even, even deeper than that, is, is where do we go for realness? And, and part of it is we've really corrupted this, uh, because the defining feature of realness is shareability. Right. That was all that was the bedrock thing. It, the, the real was shared such that you and I could both appeal to it to resolve fundamental differences. Right. And we were and we're losing this because we, we now do this weird Cartesian thing where we say my reality and like, oh, you know, it's real to me, which it, which means it's indistinguishable from illusion. Uh, it's completely indistinguishable from illusion. Like saying real to me means. Nothing different than saying it's an illusion to me. Just I take I, I I refuse to stop you know participating in the illusion or something like that. So I'm not saying that people might not be trying to articulate something with those phrases. I'm not I'm not saying they're just out and out mistaken, but I'm saying what they're saying is misshaping something in a profound way. I'm trying to point to the fact that they may want to be saying something else, but they can't articulate it. So I think. I, I mean, again, to use the relationship metaphor, I think we're still in the shock phase, right? Because the shock phase, after you lose that, that relationship, you're, you're sort of numb and in shock and everything feels unreal and you don't know where to go and you don't know what to do and you're drifting and you try to distract yourself and you might rebound. And like Bruce said, you'll pick up all kinds of surrogates. And of course, they're going to fail because they're basically idols of the person you still want to be with. I see, like I, I, I think Schellingberg is right. I think we're in, prof- we're getting evidence, really clear evidence that we're profoundly spiritually immature because we're in a shock phase, and it's just getting worse. Where we're not coming out of shock. We're not starting to get some distance about this at all. I feel it's insta- instead. Instead, we're we're getting a much more increasingly noxious imminence, and that's what that's what. When you get that rupture from a relationship, that's what it feels like. It feels like to your guts, to the very fibers of your being, you're right. Things are decaying. They're shocked. They're unable to feel they're numbed. And like I said, you thrash around. Uh, and th- that's how it's increasingly seeming to me. And, and I'm wondering how we're stuck uh, because one of the things that can happen to people in grief is they can get stuck. Uh, you know, uh, who is it, Mrs. Caversham in Great Expectation? Uh, all stuck in her grief, right? Great portrayal of that, right? Just, ah, and the decadence, right? The decadence <clears throat> that surrounds her because she's stuck. And it's right. So I'm just sort of, I don't know if, I, if I'm even contributing to this, but I'm just saying this inability uh, to recognize how truncated, maybe even traumatized we are with respect to uh, where we go for realness. Now, uh, this is part of me responding to the issue. Of course, I'm not denying that people do not have, I'm not denying that people have, I should say, I'm not denying that people have profound experiences of ultimate realness. I study them, right? But I'm, I'm saying I'm talking about a preponderance. I'm talking about a preponderance or to use layman's term, a cultural momentum that I see. And so part of the question is, it's clear that we are still, we are still psychologically, cognitively, existentially, physiologically capable of experiencing the really real. But <clears throat> it used to be those individuals acted like seeds that fell on fertile ground. Now they may aliven in individual lives or, or groups, but, but they're against a vast cultural momentum that feels like it's going the other way. I don't know if that was helpful or not, but I'm, I, I'm really trying to articulate to the death something that's very inchoate for me. I'm trying to get at, right? I was really opened up by what Bruce said. Um, like Lehman, I found the, uh, the Greasy Point, the Greasy book really good, although it made it actually strengthened my critique of Nietzsche because she also points out all the ways in which Nietzsche is actually sort of contradicting himself and working against himself. Uh, he has this, you know, normativity of, uh, of strong lives and, you know, healthy lives. And I'm worried about that, by the way, because Hahn has picked up on that. And this is a, right, is this a post-Nietzschean critique of Nietzsche? That we have turned health, almost in a, like a Nietzschean fashion, into a God surrogate, and that we have made it our God, by which, and our ultimate normativity. And we can see this being, you know, exacerbated or accelerated during COVID, right? Uh, Where like everything else is in the service of health. And it's like, hmm, health is really important, but do we want to make it that ultimate? Is that ultimately what we want to be doing? Um, Things like that. By the way, I'm not some crazy anti-vaxxer or anything like that. That's not what I'm bringing up. I'm bringing up the, the point that we took it for granted that everything should be sacrificed for health and we take it for granted. I don't believe in religion. And I go to the gym four times a week and I do like, right, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, and we're allowed to bring this up as the normativity that trumps everything else. And so I'm, I'm hesitant. Uh, I'm a little bit worried about uh, Nietzsche didn't see the possibilities that the strong life and the good life and the healthy life. Now he was using these terms metaphorically. I get it, but it's not clear what they were metaphors for. And what I think they were crypto metaphors for is a sense of vitality, meaning a sense of realness, of participation. And he was trying to recreate a participatory metaphysics. He was trying to say, you know, that Canatus, that will within you, all of reality is like that, and you should be participating that as maximally as you can. It's a participation in God metaphor. Um, and so to the degree to which he's still presupposing an intensified depth experience of realness, he's not actually dealing with the shock we are experiencing right now sorry that was a little bit strident
2: but um. no that's great and i think um i mean it's one of the things that makes nietzsche an interesting character is that cognitively he gets this really well and he gets it before almost anybody emotionally relationally he's not great in those areas (laughs) he's (laughs) covered in reiki and armory you know (laughs) Uh, So there will be elements of the richness of what he's trying to say that he himself can't get and can't act out and therefore is even missing from his articulations. I think uh, to Bruce's point, he has a few interesting things to say about uh, the templating self-object of the sacred, right? He's proposing uh, that the the future emergent ultra-human can provide that role. He's proposing maybe that the evaluation system itself can provide that role. Uh, As Creasy points out, that uh, sort of narrative sculpting of ourselves might be able to provide that role. But I think one of the most overlooked things in reading Nietzsche is that he's very deliberately not writing for everyone, right? These are sort of handbooks for a specific audience that he frequently says might not even exist yet. Uh, So he's When he lays out these kind of self-objects, I think he's laying them out for the attempter philosophers of the future. He's not laying them out as a general solution to human culture. And when we look at the way he um, sort of affirms the Jewish deity and critiques the Christian deity, the critique there is that the Jewish deity does a good job of reflecting the Jewish people back to themselves in their sacredness. And the Christian deity appears as a kind of nebulous emptiness that just loves you for some reason. And that that doesn't adequately provide a self-object that the masses of people can use to coordinate themselves with the real. So if we're looking at the emergence of a planetary human culture, he might then forecast some kind of, you know, the need for a a sacred instantiation that reflects the human type back to itself in terms of all of its skills and capacities. He doesn't flesh that out, but that would be a a, a consistent uh, follow through of his ideas. This notion John was bringing up about, about the real and where do we get it and that it has to be confirming and surprising and potentially shared. That's really intriguing because I think there are obvious places where we get a an insufficient, you know, the virtual fiction, media. I think the news is a place where we go to for constant terror and surprise. We go there together, right? But it's so mediated, it's so false, it's so skewed and it doesn't pertain to our lives, In our lives, people, it seems like at this point in history, they go to their private relationships. Um, They go to drugs of various kinds that they can even share. They go to dangerous sports. Uh, They do go to health in certain ways where you're up against, I don't mean just like going to the gym. I mean, you've got cancer or something like that, right? That's immediately surprising and confirming and real and shared. You mentioned your four Ls. I would add laughter as a fifth L because people go collectively to comedy to get some of these things.
1: Yes.
2: The health notion is intriguing. I mean, like you said, Nietzsche has a the great health, not just you know the herd health or whatever that is. Right? <laughs> uh, he's looking for some kind of multidimensional, overflowing capacity of health to provide the generation of meaning. Uh, so it's not quite what we would, you know, the surrogate God of health in a narrow social you know, COVID narrative kind of way, but it is still insufficient. All of those ways we get realness uh, may form part of the new way to do it, but it's not clear what that is. Uh, the only thing I would want to add to that is even though these are all partial and insufficient, they can be nonetheless part of what is created. Yes, right? yes. Like if we, even if we talk about like compensatory self-worship and the rise of the narcissistic individual or something, sure, that's a problem. That's a surrogate God. It's maintaining the same problems, but it's one tiny tweak away from a culture that's oriented toward authenticity and sovereignty and the role of the individual in the new thing. So if we take my, you know, the way I approach religion is like an integrative production. The integrative production can take any of these elements and make the false God into an element of the real God. So the presence or absence of our collective ability to do that seems to me more essential than critiquing any particular surrogate God. Well, I would
1: say there are two sides of the same thing. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think if you're going to get that evolving integration, you need to be challenging the idolatry of any any part. So that's a sort of t- a point. I, I do think I I do think you're right that, and that's what I meant, right? I think Nietzsche wasn't ultimately talking about health. He's talking about, he's talking, he's talking about ontological depth participation, Uh, but precisely because the scientific worldview doesn't give us, right, a a, a sacred sense of the imminent, that I I like, I I get what he's meaning, but I don't get what he's meaning because I don't know what it means to him ultimately. Uh, for, For example, like, and I think you touched upon this, Lehman, Nietzsche's position is really, really individualistic in a really profound solitariness and being an individual, like and he, that's important for authenticity, the existential, and that's something he shares with Kierkegaard, but it's like, yeah, but leaving the collective out of the sacred is very, very lopsided in, in a very powerful way. And you were invoking, right? A, 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 the, somehow, you know, the next Buddha is the Sangha, right? That, that um, it's only... Well, an argument that Dan Chappie and I've been making uh, uh, derived from Morton, right? The only thing that grasps hyper objects are hyper agents. Um, and they are only achieved through uh, the dynamics of distributed cognition. And I think for example, that's one aspect of the imminent within culture that we are mostly ignorant about these days because we've gone through a long period where we've done this weird thing, we'll give the collectivity to the market and then we'll reserve uh, this sort of, uh, you know, solitary authenticity for the individual and we've actually lost the transjectivity uh, between them in a a really profound way. And so um, I think, I, I, I mean, part of it, what we're doing is we're exemplifying the very thing I'm pointing to. We're trying to recover the dialogical sacred as something that is imminent uh, uh, but not subjectively imminent or just objectively imminent. So I, get, I guess what I've, I'm sort of trying to work into an argument, I'm not doing it very well, but I'm trying to say that perhaps right, uh, the transjective is a place of, of unexplored ontological richness that will help us get past the double death of the transcendent and the imminent. And I see a lot of people, you know, and and even, you know, titanic figures like Marlo Ponti pointing their fingers um, at that. And we, we, of course, have had, we, we have the first glimmerings even in our uh, physical ontologies, you know, around entanglement and relativity and things like that of the fundamental realness of relations. Um, and again, I'm not articulating anything beyond a relatively inchoate intuition, but I do think that this is something where we need to turn. I mean, perhaps a way to start letting go of the, I mean, the way you come out of shock in a relationship is you you first allow yourself to be very sad Right? And this goes to Bruce's thing about crying, and that ceremony he talked about, I think, was, is really important. But the other is you have to open up new possibilities for yourself that are foreclosed as long as you remain in the grammar of the lost one. So if we're still locked into grammar, Nietzsche, Nietzsche said, I fear we're not getting rid of God because we still believe in grammar. And I take that to be even more than linguistic grammar, we're, we're profoundly locked into it. And so I'm, I'm wondering if a way of getting out of the double depth of the transcendent and the imminent is where something that I see a lot of people doing, you, you, you two are doing it with your prepositional ontology. You're trying to point towards a fundamental, a new depth or a new dimension of being that has not been properly explored and represents a real possibility that is outside the grammar of the lost God. Sorry, that was kind of rambling, but I hope Yeah,
2: I'd like to uh, hand it over to Bruce, obviously, but I want to quickly agree with everything you were just saying there. Yeah. Uh, And this is why I find Nietzsche so compelling because he, it's sort of all there, but the, the most important parts aren't quite called out. There's yeah. a great book by Julian Young on Nietzsche and religion where he really unpacks the communitarian ethos aspect that's implied in Nietzsche's writings, but Nietzsche doesn't specify that very much. He's speaking yeah. to these individuals, and he's crying out for companions, right? You hear that in all, yes. right? He needs yeah. friends. He doesn't have yeah. friends. Yeah. The yes. intersubjective element is missing in his own life. And even when he theorizes, right, he's going to put self-overcoming at the root of reality to replace that fixed grammar. The thing that's implied by self-overcoming is the other right? Yes. When you move yeah. past the thing and say the thing is itself because it's adjacent to itself, that kind of thing, that means that the other is in some kind of reciprocal relationship with you at that level. His cognition is describing it. His heart is crying out for it, but he's not getting it and it's not coming forward in his theory. And I would probably argue that the the missing set of the healing affects is located transjectively in certain kinds of relational engagements. And so he's pointing to the need for them, but he's not getting them. I get that. I want to just say one thing and let Bruce talk, which is I think part of what blocks
1: Nietzsche around this is has his 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 weird antipathy to Socrates and to Plato. So I you know Socrates is so close to me, I'm always fighting him. Like there's a weird thing going on there that I think prevents him from being able to explicitly like confront. Uh, the dialogical as an essential component, even though, as you said, it's implicit through all of his work. He's got a certain lock uh, against it uh, because of some some antipathies that he constantly comes back to again and again again and again and again and again. And it's odd because that's one of the few figures that you don't see any deep progression in his thinking. There's progression in his thoughts about Jesus and like... But with Socrates, it's fixed. It's really fixed. Um, it's almost fixated um, in a very powerful way. The opposite, again, of Kierkegaard, who takes Socrates as his most profound teacher. So that's a very interesting uh, thing. I just wanted to say that. I, I think there's a, there's something else. I, I can't quite articulate what it is, but there's something else that's blocking Nietzsche, getting access to the dialogical. Um, whereas for Nishitani, of course, the dialogical is taken to the depths in the Koan. And he gets that, and he gets that this is a place in which we can grieve to the depths and then find something deeper than our grief from which, which we come back.
0: All right, I've got such a soup of things in my mind now from all of <laughs> <laughs> us. Uh, yeah, I, I think there is something really central to dialogue here, not just, you know, kind of Postmodern fixation on dialogue as the panacea. We're going to, let's just talk through our problems, but really the whole dialogical movement. And, you know, I resonate with, with David Bohm's formulation of soma significance and signosomatics that uh, that reality is both significant and, and and embodied (laughs) at multiple layers and that they're, they're reciprocally, you know supporting it you know and you can go in both ways through the form into the meaning and the meaning is always leading to new forms right there's this this ongoing dance so i'm just saying that to say that i don't think we ever get away from grammar right you know yes. uh, but for me the the project is working in and with grammar in in unexpected ways and yes. so yes yeah. One of the things I've been wanting to do is, you know, with my integral grammatology is look at all of the different ways that the, the parts of speech inform our fundamental ontological presuppositions about reality, which ones dominate, which ones are sidelined. How do we ontically choreograph them into different meaning spaces and what kind of ontochoreography choreography is needed for the articulation of uh, a, a responsive, you know, ad- adequate Meaning frame for our time, and as you were pointing out, you know, for Layman and I, we've really been looking at the prepositional and and maybe the adverbial modal
2: mm-hmm. as
0: some mm-hmm. of the the themes that need to be emphasized more. Now at this time, the relational um, mm-hmm. component, and there's so many there's so many I I find so many threads supporting that, and Layman and I are working on a book that is going to lay out. Oh, great!
1: That's I great news. That.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I would say as a, as a teacher, I want I, I've been teaching maybe 10, 12 years, a class called transpersonal psychology and it's, it's looking, you know, what transpersonal psychology is, but we're, I'm trying to do it from kind of our, our frame in a way where we're not looking at just how do we tack woo stuff on top of psychology, but how do we really <laughs> recognize, you know, the sacred in and through a, a psychological approach, uh, but one of the one of the assignments in that class is for students to write a spiritual autobiography and to talk about what spirituality is for them and to write that. And this is just anecdotal, you know, it, it's not a study. But over those twelve years, one of the most almost the it it, all, it stands out so significantly is that they say that a feeling of connection. Yes. Is what is spiritual and sacred yes. for them? Yes, always. Yes always and 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 so you know that's this that that brings us around to the the issues at the beginning of, of silencing and, and the severing and what you've pointed to in your work on the meaning crisis as the feeling of a loss of, of connection and participation yes. yes and and what stands what are the stoppers that stand in the way of, of feeling that meaningful connection again, and there are rituals and there are different things that are going on, but I think we also have to look at culturally, what are the interruptive mechanisms? What are the different things that stop us from deeply processing our grief about the state of the world and the other feelings associated with the the state of the world um, in a way that we can actually enter into meaningful feedback loops with reality, um, and, and I think allow for a transjecting Transjective informing of our being. Yeah. Uh, one other point I wanted to throw in. This is just my soup of, of different things floating around there. Um, I was thinking in terms of the emphasis on on health, right, and and yeah. the, the, the surrogacy of, of you know the health deity. And I think there is that you know deeper dimension that you point to, which is like a profoundly participatory, robust <laughs> sense of yeah. being in the world. Yeah. Uh, but there's a uh, in in some postmodern thought, in some post-postmodern or feminist thought. I'm thinking, for instance, of Alistair McIntyre mm-hmm. and his work uh, Dependent Rational Animals and After Virtue and, and Dependent Rational Animals. One of the things that he's looking at uh, is, you know, what are the virtues? And and, and that, you know, and and, and what role do they play in the economies of our our being and in the ecologies of our being? Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he works through the the variation of the different virtue sets of different cultures and that they don't, they're not all uniform. For him, there are conditions of thriving for any kind of Mm bio-ecosocial setting, that there are conditions of thriving and there are conditions that thwart thriving and that virtues typically are those things that rise up out of that interactive constellation that allow for behaviors that produce thriving within those conditions. So they emerge as kind of attractors out of that dynamic ecological um, interaction. And so he would say, we can say really that there is a condition of thriving for a pot of dolphin, you know, or for a forest. We have a hard time saying it for humans because we're not sure (laughs) what we're looking at um, to the same degree. But the one thing that he emphasizes there is vulnerability and dependence and sickness and weakness and despair and death as being part of the establishment of a real set of living virtues. And that, you know, for instance, we all are dependent on each other. Um, we're, We're going to come to a point where we're going to need to be taken care of by other people. There, there are always going to be conditions where good action can't guarantee that you're going to get a benefit for carrying out that action. And yet that action feeds into the overall well-being of that society. So for him, the virtue has to take account of our dependency and our vulnerability and our sickness. and to be in a rising kind of emerging transcendent attractor out of those conditions that it is operative in a way, that allows for, you know, it creates a generative enclosure in my language. That that allows for there to be the maximal thriving within those conditions, um, but it has to, it has to take as part of its object our vulnerability, our weakness, dependence, our subjective, you know, subjectiveness to to death and decay.
1: I'm wondering if, um, I'm wondering if. What I, I think that's really important. Um, instead of looking at the decay, uh, try to look through it uh, to what might be be disclosed. And I'm wonder. I'm wondering. This is wondering, pondering, wondering. If there's a. Uh, so I, I want to do this very carefully because I don't want to. I don't want to. I'm not trying to sugarcoat the fact that the environment is at risk and species are being eradicated, right? But I'm wondering if part of so obviously we should look at that, and so I want that very clearly understood. But is there a way of also looking through it? Like McIntyre isn't, you know, saying you know sickness is a good thing, but he's saying you have to look through it and see what it discloses about mm-hmm. the reality of the virtues. If I've understood that argument exactly. correctly, right? Okay. So in a similar way, can we look through the decadence of the imminent to see the fact that perhaps our notion of thriving and flourishing? can no longer be anthropocentric in the way ahead it has always been. And that we have, or at least it seems to have been. I don't want, uh, like I can see people saying this culture didn't do that, okay, granted, but it, at least it's predominant right now in a global sense that matters, right? So, I mean, what I, I, I actually think if we have to include, you know, ecosystems, the thriving of ecosystems into our understanding of flourishing and thriving that that is a fundamental change that we are not ready for in like conceptually in in a lot of ways. I think it's necessary and needed, but what I'm saying is when people talk that way and I appreciate them talking that way. um, But the philosopher in me will say, and it's very similar to Nietzsche in the marketplace. You don't realize what you're saying. You don't realize how profound that would be to move to a non-anthropocentric notion of thriving and flourishing. You don't get it. You can say it, and it's true, but that's not, this is not what I, like, I feel very parallel to the, the the madman in the marketplace, right? Like, you don't realize what that means, what that really would mean. And, you know, we never had to consider that as long as nature seemed non-vulnerable, but now that we're getting a sense of the non-cultural world as extremely um, vulnerable, that perhaps that's a call. One thing we could do is we could, instead of just looking at it negatively, don't don't stop doing that, but we could also look through it positively, and perhaps we're hearing a call that we have to do a fundamental change, uh, and part of why we're stuck, perhaps, is because we're not willing to make that change. What I'm saying is something, the, the, the wisdom traditions have been very good at saying you need to get out of egocentrism. And that's, that's good. But maybe we're now being posed with the next step in spirituality, which is in a similar and profound way, we have to get out of anthropocentric ways of thinking and being. And as deeply as the wisdom traditions explored what it really, really means, we all say, oh, I shouldn't be so egocentric. But when you actually try to be less egocentric, it is a titanic thing. And the spiritual traditions have been very good about that. But w- what I'm proposing to you is we need to hear the call that we need to do something analogous at the distributed level, the hyper agency level, right, which is overcoming anthropocentrism. And that is as deeply as spiritually a deep task as overcoming uh, egocentrism.
0: I wanna throw in one tiny parenthetical before Layman goes here. Uh, I really love what you just said uh, there about, we we can't flinch away from looking at, but the looking through is valuable. And for me, I've I've kind of paired, at least in looking at the state of the world, uh, Derek Jensen and Joanna Macy, as those two alternatives. Ah. Um, Derek Jensen shoves in your face the look at. <laughs> yeah. um, and Joanna Macy says, look through. Because what she says is, you know, don't be afraid of the grief. Don't be afraid of the heartbreak break. Don't be afraid of the disappointment. You know, all those things, because all of those things are testimony to your connectedness to the world about which you are disappointed about which you are despairing and about which you are, uh, for which you are grieving.
1: Who who is, sorry for interrupting. I've not, I don't recognize this name. Who is this person you're mentioning? Uh, Joanna Macy. Joanna Macy. What, like, what, what would be a book to read by her? Or, sorry for interrupting, Bruce, but that's just like, wow, that's beautiful. Uh,
0: Yeah, she's got, um, one of her uh, books that's kind of made an impact is called World as Lover, World as Self.
1: Oh, okay. Okay.
0: She, she originally started out looking at uh, Pratichya Pada, the doctrine of dependent origination and applying it to ecological thought and kind of exploring that okay. in a theoretical way. But she was also an activist uh, who was working on different issues, you know, nuclear pro- proliferation and, and deforestation and different things like that. But I, I i mentioned her briefly in our last talk where she came to the point where in her own activist work she realized she wasn't processing her grief for the world right 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 and, and it eventually overcame her and she you know she actually fell behind her desk and cried for a couple hours and then she really thought okay how do we really allow for this processing and it's been working on developing organs for you know communal organs for the processing of these feelings but one of the things that she's saying is that we need to, yeah, we can recognize in that grief the, the very roots of the 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 relationship yeah. and the connection. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't have to be feared.
1: Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, Macy M-A-C-Y. Right. Yeah, okay.
0: And she calls um, it the greening of the self, um or the eco um ecocentrism where she's talking about we need to yeah. be able to develop a self that is Yeah, taking seriously the life of the world um, and, and begins to organize itself around the collective thriving.
2: I would say one thing about that and then make a proposal for next time. The thing I want to say about that is there's more to it than just not being afraid to let your heart break. Mm-hmm. Right. It's also a skill and it's also something yeah. that there's a set of meta health preconditions for it. You need the right chemistry. You need to be loose enough. Your breathing right. must be able to be free. Right. So there's a whole set of things. If you have those things, then maybe you can make the decision not to be afraid of it. But many people aren't in a position where they're even really able to let their heart break. Mm-hmm. Um, So I've heard two things that I think would be really interesting jumping off points for next time that place it in a kind of continuity with the Nietzsche discussion. One is this topic of virtues. Um, And in particular, the way that virtues lean into the negative, right? Nietzsche was very keen on that, right? That there is a virtue in exploring evil and exploring angst and exploring cruelty and wondering about deception. And there's a way to bring your positive virtues and negative experiences together. And one of the things that might indict a system of ideals as being nihilistic is that their virtues are all only oriented toward positive affect, Mm -hmm. and they don't explore the negative. So the question of virtue and its relationship to the negative Mm. As well as this post-anthropocentric situation. Mm. And just like uh, Nietzsche cried out for musical Socrates, we could cry out for an ecological Nietzsche, uh, and, right? And there's, there's something there. I mean, he's already talking about deep participatory appetition in a transhuman fashion, but there's something missing there. Uh, I think he does a good job of warding off the misanthropy, which is half of it. We don't want a post-anthropocentric misanthropy. Yes. Lister yes. does wrestle with the problem of, of nausea at humanity. Uh, yeah. So he's got that side cover, but he doesn't really get into, you know, animals, even though, you know, poetically, plants and animals and everything are very richly present. We don't get a vision of what how Nietzsche would see ecology. And we think we probably need that. So. Uh, post anthropocentric Nietzschean ecology and virtue, insofar as it can also lean into the negative, might be good places to go forward. Could, could I mend
1: the, the second thing just slightly, the negative and the ambiguous? Because I think we met, we've mentioned before, and this is where you know Hick and uh, Sellingberg come together for me, right. Um, the, 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 the realization that we're spiritually immature and we and the, the universe is is in some powerful ways spiritually ambiguous. And trying to pretend, make-believe that it isn't uh, ambiguous is again a way in which we're not, we're severing ourselves from uh, the imminent in a powerful way. And thereby also, I, I guess you see there's an implicit argument I have that the imminent and the transcendent are like the self and other, um, right? And, and and they're interdependent uh, with each other in, in a really profound way. So if we could amend it, that's the the second point slightly, sure. Blame, I think I think this is a great proposal for next time.
0: I love that. And and one thing I was thinking about that maybe we could, I think it's related to this Uh, Andy Fisher, uh, in his book, uh, radical eco psychology talks about this, but he talks about, uh, you know, I I was thinking about it because Lehman was just saying that you just can't just like say, okay, break my heart open. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, That I was traumatized by that, you know, uh, Years ago, I was an English major, and I took a, for my biology credit, I think I took a dinosaur physiology class or something like that. Um, At the very last lecture, the professor got up and did not talk about dinosaur physiology. Um, This was back in the early 90s, I think, but or late 80s, early 90s. He talked about the state of the world, and he hit us with this massive list of truth bombs about state of the oceans, the mass extinctions, and Mm. he went through this, you know, litany of, of, you know, disruptions that that we're we're facing or going to face, and then he dismissed the class, Mm. and for me and for a lot of students, you know, we'd heard some of it before, we hadn't heard all of it, and it was very hard to go away from that, it was traumatizing, it was not the right way to deliver That message, you know. Um, And I think sometimes Derek Jensen does the same kind of thing of of hitting you over the head with a hammer a little bit too hard. But what I wanted to bring in here, Andy Fisher's point, is that we are traumatized to the extent that we don't have a space big enough to hold the pain that's coming in.
1: Yes, 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 yes.
0: And so we don't have the container for that. And so without the adequate, container we can't process a world-sized grief right yeah. so that's a task that's a task how do we how do we call forth an adequate meaning space an adequate container that can help us actually do this almost christ like tonglen like process of 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 you know bringing the the, the world's shadow through the body you know, we need we need collective social resources for that and, and individual resources for that. And I, I see that as part of a task of a religion, it's not a religion or post-metaphysical spirituality, is to build a container
1: for that. Uh, I think that's an excellent third dimension for next time. Right. And I think it relates to the other two perfectly. I see deep intuitive connections between right, a, a, a broadened notion, deepened notion of virtue you know, a a deeper lived notion of being non-anthropocentric and what you said, getting a container big enough uh, to properly grieve. I I think those are all deeply connected. I would like to talk about all three in in an interconnected fashion.
0: Wonderful. All right. So I'm I'm assuming uh, if you don't explode in May, Um, we'll gather again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as always, I really enjoyed this with you. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm finding this, um, genuinely dialogical, like it's helping me tease out thinking and like realization. So I'm deeply appreciative, deeply grateful.
0: Me too. Thank you.